How are we doing, guys? Good. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to share God's Word with you guys. Uh, if you're new here, this is your first time, just want to say welcome. Uh, we love that you're here, uh, and we'd love to get to know you more. We'd love to connect with you. And so uh, you should have gotten a program on your way in. There's a, a spot at the bottom of that where you can fill out your contact information. Uh, if you have any prayer requests or would like information about uh, starting point or launch point, just what it looks like to get involved here as a church, I'd point you to do that, and we'd love to connect with you guys. And so uh, just glad that you guys are here and we are continuing our life of Jesus series this morning. It's been fun to be able to go through the gospels, primarily uh, Matthew's account of the gospel. And uh, we're looking at the life of Jesus as the title of the series would suggest, right? Uh, That should not come as a surprise. Uh, We're looking at his life. We're looking at the events of Jesus's life and more than just knowing what happened to Jesus We're looking through this series on how does what Jesus went through, how does the events of his life, how does the way that he lived actually inform us as followers of Jesus? How does this actually help us follow Jesus better? How does it actually help us to be better followers of Christ? And so that's what we've been doing. And we've been looking at some uh, really big stuff so far. We've seen the birth of Jesus. We've seen uh, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. Uh, And those are all really sweet events that we got to learn more about who Jesus is and what we can learn about following him. And then we've also seen the character of Jesus. Uh, Last week, we looked at the anger of Jesus, and I was probably the only one convicted about anger, huh? No, a couple of you guys too? Yeah. Um, But we've seen the anger of Jesus, what real anger, righteous anger looks like. Uh, We saw uh, the compassion of Jesus, and we've seen the identity of Jesus. We've just seen a whole lot about who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for us as followers of Jesus. And so this morning, we're continuing in that same vein, and we're actually going to be looking at, uh, through the life of Jesus, we're going to be looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this shouldn't be a controversial statement, you're in church, uh, but the death and resurrection of Jesus is the single most important and significant event in human history, right? We can all agree to that. Single most important event and significant event in human history. And like, if you're a Christian, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is what your faith is based on. That Jesus came to earth. We were separated from God by our sin. That Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, then died on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, taking the punishment of our sin, the death that we deserved upon himself. He died on the cross and then was raised three days later. Like it's the single most important, significant event in human history. And if you ask any follower of Jesus what Jesus did, they'll say the death and resurrection, right? Like that will be on their short list of answers of what Jesus did while he was on earth. It's the foundation of our faith. And I I just want to start this morning by just sitting in that for a moment. Because sometimes I think we can be too quick to glance over it. That if you're a Christian, you are a Christian because Jesus came to earth and he died for you. He died for your sin. He bore the cost of your sin upon himself on the cross. He died and was raised back to life three days later to show power and victory over sin, Satan, and death. That's why you are a Christian, because Jesus really died and Jesus really rose. 
Amen. And if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, if you don't follow Jesus, I just want you to invite you to place your faith in that reality this morning. That Jesus really died. That you really need a savior. That you are really separated from God. But God really loves you enough that he sent Jesus to earth to die for you. To raise back to life so that you could be in right relationship with him again. That is a reality that actually happened. That is a real thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus actually happened. And it is the foundation of our faith as followers of Jesus. But what if there's greater implications to the death and resurrection of Jesus than just eternal life? Like there's definitely not less of that, right? Like we know that we have a guaranteed salvation, guaranteed inheritance through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what if there's something more that we can learn from the death and resurrection of Jesus? What if there's something that we can learn about how we are supposed to live our life through the death and resurrection of Jesus? What if it's not just showing us that we have eternal life, but it's also showing us the way that Jesus lived his life up to his death and resurrection? What if that is showing us how we are supposed to live our life here and today? And that's really what I want us to hone in on this morning. We're going to talk about the death and resurrection, but maybe a little bit broader than that. We're going to talk about the events leading up to the death and resurrection. We're going to talk about how Jesus approached his death. We're going to talk about his attitude that he had and see what we can learn from that. And in order to see that, we're going to be in Matthew, uh, primarily Matthew 26. We're going to be in Matthew's account of the gospel again starting in chapter 26. And the entire uh, moments leading up to Jesus's death is found in Matthew 26. And in Matthew 27, we see his crucifixion and then his resurrection, Matthew 28. And so really this entire uh, topic of the death and resurrection of Jesus goes from Matthew 26 through Matthew 28. We're not gonna read all 151 verses this morning, which might be a bummer to some of you because you just love hearing me read. Um, But we're going to primarily focus on a lot of the events that happened in Matthew 26. We're going to look and see how did Jesus approach his death and what can we learn about what it looks like to follow him from that. And so Matthew 26, we're going to first see a few things about Jesus as he approaches death. Verses 1 and 2. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We see something really important here. That Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. That Jesus knows that he is about to go to his death. And he doesn't just mention it here in a few verses down later. We see another account with this woman in Bethany where we see Jesus do the same thing. He says that he's going to die. Uh, Starting in verse 6, he says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this woman anoints Jesus with this expensive ointment. The disciples are angry, saying, man, we could have done so much more with the money this ointment brought in, uh, which I feel like that could be a common response that we have. Like, man, we could have done so much more with these resources. But Jesus gets angry with them. He says, no, don't be upset at this woman. She has done a great thing, a beautiful thing. She's preparing me for my burial. And what has to happen before you get buried? You have to die, right? Jesus is once again sharing that, hey, I am about to die. And he doesn't just do this in Matthew 26. He actually does it three other times uh, in the gospel of Matthew leading up to this. In chapter 16, 17, and 20. I'll read the uh, account in chapter 20 for you because it's the most clear what he says. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. We see something really important here, that Jesus knows that he is about to die. Jesus knows what's awaiting him. He knows that he is about to be crucified. And this, honestly, it shouldn't come as a big surprise for us, right? Like, Jesus is God. Like, it would make sense that he would know that he was about to die, right? But when you kind of, when you put it in context of some of the other things we're going to look at, it's really important for us to remember that Jesus knew he was about to die. And then we keep going and we see a couple other things that are true about Jesus as he approaches his death. Continuing in chapter 26, uh, starting in verse 36. This is after he's had Passover with them. He's uh, told the disciples that they would flee from him, that Peter would deny him. And then they get ready and they go to a garden to pray. And this is where we pick up. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, See, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. I want to pause there for a second, because I think we see something that's really, that was really challenging to me as I was reading this. Um, we see something about Peter that I think is true for a lot of us, or at least is true for me. Like Jesus, he takes his disciples to the garden. He says, hey, pray for me. I'm going to pray. I'm sorrowful. I'm troubled. I need you guys as my followers and friends to be praying for me. And so he goes away and he prays and he comes back. And it says that the disciples were asleep. Anyone else ever fall asleep while praying? No one wants to, a couple of you are brave enough to admit it. Thank you. Um, I have a newborn at home. And so uh, this happens more often than I would like to admit right now, right? 
I'm in bed, I'm praying, and then I just fall asleep. I wake up, I was like, I hope that prayer was okay, God. Um, And maybe it was an answer to prayer, who knows. Uh, But the reason this is challenging to me is that Peter was the one who was so confident, so confident that he would never betray Jesus, deny Jesus, or flee from Jesus. Yet here we are just moments later, maybe a couple hours later, And we see Peter, the one who was so confident that he would never flee from Jesus or deny him, not even able to stay a week to pray for him. Like this Peter who was so confident, like, I would choose to die for you, not even able to stay awake to pray for him. This was challenging to me because like for a while when I was younger and teenager, I would just think like, man, if I was ever approached with like either die or renounce Jesus, I would be like, man, I'm going to die. I would die for Jesus. I had like Peter syndrome here, right? Like, no, Jesus, I would never do that. I would die for you. But then as I read this account, see that he couldn't even stay awake. And then moments later, we see him denying Jesus three times. I started thinking, man, maybe I'm more like Peter than I think. Maybe I'm so confident that I would die for Jesus, but I can't even live my life for him sometimes. I just think that we just need to take heed of what is true of Peter here. That he was so confident in his ability to walk closely with Jesus, even though his life wasn't really reflecting it that much there. Like we are all in danger of that. But let's keep going. Uh, Jesus came, he again came, found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We see another thing that is true of Jesus here. Like, did you guys notice what he was praying in the garden? He goes into the garden and he's praying. And he's asking God, if you will, take this cup away from me. He's essentially saying, God, I don't want to die like this. I don't want it to be this way. I don't want, like, there's a part of Jesus that we see here where a part of Jesus didn't want to be betrayed by his friend and follower. A part of Jesus didn't want to be mocked. A part of Jesus didn't want to be beaten and carrying his own cross. A part of him didn't want to die the way that he died. Like, that's what we see in this prayer. Father, if you will, take this cup away from me. I don't want to suffer this way. What we see through his prayer was there was a part of Jesus that he would have had preferred there to be another way for God's people to be brought back to God. That's what we see as he's praying, that he knows what's about to happen. And he doesn't just know what's about to happen, but there is a part of him that would have preferred for it to happen another way. And then as we keep going... There's one more piece I want to add into this, that when you put all of these three things together, it really changes the way that you view Jesus as he approaches his death. And it comes right after he has been, uh, right after he gets done praying in the garden and Judas comes into the garden 
Judas comes to betray him and he seizes Jesus. He grabs him and then Peter takes his sword, chops off a guy's ear, which is either really impressive or he's just really bad with a sword if he was going for something else. I'm not sure. Uh, Peter was a fisherman, so he probably was just bad with a sword. Um, but we see this happening. Jesus is seized and grabbed, taken a hold of, betrayed by Judas. Um, Peter gets feisty, uh, cuts off a guy's ear. And then this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 52. He says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? What he is saying to Peter is put your sword away. You don't think that I could do something about this? I could, I could go to God right now and say, God, uh, help please. And he would send 12 legions of angels, which is about 72,000 angels. You're thinking that 72,000 angels are going to have trouble with a few soldiers? Not a chance, right? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I could get out of this if I wanted to. I have control over the situation. I have power to change what could happen. I have the ability to do that. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so this is what I want you guys to see. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to die. He preferred that it wouldn't happen. Like we see that in his prayer in the garden. And we see here that he had the power to make it not happen. He knew it was going to happen. He preferred for it to not happen. He had the power to make it not happen. So the question is, why does it still happen? Why does chapter 27 still take place? Why is he still arrested? Why is he still flogged and beaten and murdered? Because if you were to tell me, hey, Ian, you're going to die. You're going to get hit by a semi-truck on the way home. Okay, I know about the semi-truck. I don't want to die, right? Like, I want to go home to my wife and kids this afternoon. That'd be pretty nice. I don't want to die. I have different routes that I can take to go home. So I, if I knew a semi was going to hit me, I didn't want to die, and I had a different way I could get home, do you think a semi would hit me? Yeah. Not a chance. I'm avoiding that truck like the plague, right? Not a chance. If I knew it was going to happen... I didn't want it to happen, and I had the power to make it not happen, that it would still happen. Yet Jesus, knowing that he is about to die, preferring not to die, having the power to get away from it, still went to death. Still was crucified. Still was buried. And so why did it happen? Why does chapter 27 still happen? I think we get hints of it throughout chapter 26 as well as Jesus is talking. In verse 24, he says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. So he is doing it to be obedient to what the father had already determined. In verse 39, he says, father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That was in 42. In verse 39, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He chose to do what the Father wanted. It was the Father's will. 
And then in verse 54, he says, but how then should scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He was more concerned about obeying the father than anything else. You see, what we see here is that Jesus is showing us really clearly what it looks like to actually trust God. The events leading up to Jesus' death are actually showing and revealing to us what it really looks like to trust God. And I think a lot of us would say, yeah, I trust God. Of course, yeah, why wouldn't I trust God? And even when we ask, okay, why, would, why do you trust God? And it's like, well, he sent Jesus. Like Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Of course I trust him. But what if the question isn't, do you trust God? But how do you trust God? How does your life show that you trust God? Because it's one thing to say that you have trust, and it's another thing to display it, right? It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to display it. Like, I can say that I trust my kids to not ride their scooters down our driveway into the road, right? One thing to say that I trust them not to do that. Do I actually trust them? Zero percent. That's why I park my car halfway down our driveway, right? So that they hit my car instead of an oncoming car. I don't trust them. And so that is shown because I put my car in the middle of the driveway. What if you say you trust Jesus, but your life, does your life actually show it? Does your life actually display a trust in the Father that you say that you have? Because here's what we see about trusting God from Jesus. Even though he knew death would happen, He wanted it to happen a different way and had the power to make it happen a different way. He was more concerned about being obedient to the Father than getting what he wanted. He was more concerned about submitting to the Father's will than doing what he preferred. And ultimately what we actually see happen is that uh, being obedient was actually what Jesus wanted. That trusting the Father looked to Jesus as being obedient to the Father. And that's ultimately what he cared about. That's ultimately what he wanted the most in life was to be obedient to the will of God. That's what real trust looks like. So church, do you trust God in that way? Does that kind of trust characterize your life? Where you're willing to submit to the will of the Father, even if it's not your preference in the moment? Are you willing to make the will of the Father your will, what you actually want? Because I think far too often that's not the way that we live. Especially here in America, right? Where it's like, hey, you do you. Follow your own heart. Worry about yourself. And we get so focused on us. We're such an individual, individualistic culture where it's like, man, we, what can I gain from this? What is there for me in this? How does this benefit me? It's like we'd spend so much time thinking about what we want, doing what we want, earning what we want, working for what we want. And then we hope other people are doing that for us too, right? Like we hope other people are thinking about us, hope other people are caring about us. We're so focused on ourselves, so focused what on we want and what we want to do and what we want to think that the idea of willfully submitting that and not getting what we want just sounds preposterous to us. But that's exactly the kind of trust that Jesus has in the Father here. 
That's the kind of trust that is displayed. Because we're so used to calling the shots in our own life that we don't realize that that's not the call of the Christian life. That the Christian life isn't about calling our own shots. It's not about doing what we want and just putting the Jesus stamp on it. There's something more to it. It's laying aside our preference and instead adopting the will of the Father as our own and submitting to that. And that's what we see happen to Jesus as he approaches his death. We see him humbly submit in obedience to the Father's will. Philippians 2, I know Simon read it for you guys a little bit earlier, but Philippians 2 says it like this. Starting in verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see actually leading up to that starting in verse 6, it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Jesus laid himself aside to be obedient to the Father's will, even to death. That's what true trust in God looks like. Laying aside ourselves for the will of the Father. It means dying to ourself. This is how Paul puts it in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, he says in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then later in chapter 5, he says this, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus' trust in God the Father led to his crucifixion and resurrection. And our trust in God the Father leads to our death. Might not be a physical death, but there is death. The call of the Christian is to die. To die to ourselves. Like it's no coincidence that Paul uses the same word crucifixion here, right? It's no coincidence that he uses the same word as what happened to Jesus on the cross. There's a part of the Christian life that is an invitation into death in order to actually live. That is part of the Christian life. That is what we learn about following Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we're not going to die for the sins of the world, right? Like Jesus already did that, and that was sufficient. We're not going to die for the sins of the world. And most of us, we're not even going to be asked to physically die for the sake of Jesus. But every single one of us, even though we might not physically die for the name of Jesus, we are called to die daily for the name of Jesus. We are called to lay aside our preferences, lay aside our desires, and adopt on ourselves the will of God, the desire of God. That's what real trust in God looks like, a dying to self for the obedience of God. So the question is, why should we trust in that way? 
Why is that a way that we should trust God? Because asking, asking us to die to our own preferences, our own wants and desires, like, that's a big ask, right? Like, why would we do that? I think here's the beautiful thing, is that we can trust God in this way because he has proven himself trustworthy. We can trust God in this way because he's proven himself good. He's proven that we, that we can trust him because Jesus didn't stay dead, right? Like Jesus understood this. He went to his death, willfully went to his death to adopt the will of God onto his own. Said, I'm going to lay down my preference so that I can do what God wants me to do. He became obedient to God. But he knew that death wasn't the end. Because what comes after Jesus' death? What comes after it, church? His resurrection. Jesus knew that death wasn't the end. And so he trusted God enough to die because he knew that that's not where this whole thing was ending. We see this pretty clearly laid out in Matthew 26 in verse 63 and 64. He's being questioned. He's being accused after he's been arrested. And this is what it says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Hebrews 2 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. So we see that Jesus knew that this wasn't the end. He knew that death wasn't just death. He knew that death was the way to glory. He knew that death was the way to joy. He knew that death was the way to sitting at the right hand of God Almighty. He trusted God because he knew God was good. He trusted God because he knew God's plan was good. And so he willfully said, I don't, yes, I might not prefer to die this way, but I'm willing to because I trust God, trust that he is good and his plan is for my good. Church, do you trust that God is good? Do you have that level of trust that no matter what comes, you trust that he is good? No matter what suffering comes, no matter what pain comes, no matter what hurt comes, no matter what persecution comes, that you can trust God with your life by daily dying to yourself because you know that he is good, because the resurrection is true, that he raised Jesus from the dead so that we could be raised from the dead, so that we could have life, so that we could be with him in eternity. If you had that kind of trust for God, it would look like obedience to God. That if you trusted that God was good, that his plan was good, then you would be obedient to God no matter what. Just like Jesus was obedient to God even to his death. Because that's what trust looks like. Trust looks like submitting to the will of the Father and making that will our own, and seeing that will as good no matter what. You could say it like this. Your submission to God displays your trust in God. Your submission to God displays your trust in God. 
And so church, do you trust God? If so, it should be very evident in the way that you live. A way that is in complete submission to him. And it's not going to be easy. Like I'm telling you, it's going to be hard. Like death is hard, right? Crucifixion hurts. It might involve suffering. But that is the call of following Jesus. That's the example that Jesus set before us by going to the cross. That it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. But it's so worth it. It's worth it because Jesus' resurrection proves that there is more to this life than just this life. It's worth it because God is good. God can be trusted. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have eternity with God forever. It's so worth it. Like, see how Paul says it in Philippians 3. It says in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. He, uh, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means I may, all means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul saying following Jesus is going to be hard. Dying to yourself is going to be costly. It's going to lead to suffering. But that suffering is worth it. That cost is worth it. Because as you suffer and as you die to self, you get to know Jesus more. You get to become more like Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, you get to be with Jesus forever. And church, there is nothing better than that. Nothing can compare to that. And so church, this week, there's a few things that I want you to do as we look at this text, as we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus and the moments leading up to it, a few things I want you to do. First of all, I want you to trust in God. Some of you, that might be for the very first time. Where you've been trying to live your own life, you've been trying to make yourself right with God, or maybe just completely neglecting it. And I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning convicts you and challenges you and reveals to you the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised to life so that you could have life. Trust in Jesus. Some of you, you just need to trust that God's plan is good. You need to trust in the goodness of God. And there's been things that have been happening in your life where it's caused you to doubt. It's caused you to wonder, is God actually good? Does God actually know what he's doing? And I hope that you see through this that God is good, that his plan is good. And his good plan includes your suffering to one day lead to your resurrection with him in eternity. Trust him. Trust that he is good. And with that trust comes the next thing. You need to display that trust through dying to yourself. 
Display your trust in Jesus by dying to yourself. If we're all really honest with ourselves, we know that there's things that we need to die to. There's parts of our life that have not been conformed to the image of God. Ways that we are being willfully disobedient or maybe we're just ignorant of. The call this morning is to display your trust by dying to yourself. Like Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The call is to die to yourself so that Christ can live through your life in this world. So how do you need to die this week? And what areas does death need to happen? Maybe there's some comfort that you need to kill. Comfort that's keeping you from talking to your neighbor or your coworker or your family about who Jesus is and the faith that you have in him. Maybe there's some control you need to kill. That anytime things go wrong in your life or are outside of your control... It just eats your life and you need to kill the control in your life because you need to see you're not in control, but God is. And you trying to be in control is actually keeping you from submitting to the will of God. Maybe you need to kill the greed in your life. The greed that's keeping you from giving as much as you should or or from making you work longer than you should. Making you overwork and undergive. Maybe there's some greed that needs to be crucified in your life. Maybe there's some fleshly lusts that need to be crucified in your life. Where you just chase these thoughts down and down and down. And you need to crucify those thoughts. The call of the Christian life is to crucify our self for the sake of following Jesus. To crucify our desires and our flesh. And bring on God's desires. Bring on God's will. And submit fully to them. So you need to trust in God. You need to display your trust in God by dying to yourself. And you need to remember the resurrection. Because that's what makes all of this worth it. Because in all this we see because of the resurrection that God is good. That his plan is good. Even though it includes your suffering, it's still good. And we see that it's good in the power of the resurrection, that even though Jesus preferred not to die, it cost him greatly. He was raised to the right hand of God, raised in power to be in glory and to come back one day and make all things right. And so you remember the resurrection because that is your hope for life with Jesus, to, life, to live life in eternity with God forever. In church, if we did that, and we wouldn't sweat it when the things that maybe we don't like happen to us. We'd realize that part of our daily dying is in submission to God's will. And instead of wallowing in self-pity when suffering comes, and wallowing in self-pity when we have to say no to the things our flesh wants for obedience to Jesus, instead of wallowing in self-pity, we'd be people who worship. People who see it as worth it because following Jesus is worth it. And having Jesus forever is worth it. Amen? Let's pray.
God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that gives us life. Where we have the forgiveness of sins. We have hope of a new life with you. May we be so quick to remember your death and resurrection. And God, as we look at the death and resurrection and we remember it, may it also fuel within us a desire to follow you more closely. That we would see areas in our life, that your spirit would show us areas in our life that we need to die to ourselves so that we can live closer for you. God, may we be people who walk closely with you, who trust you, and who display that trust through submission to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.